Four years ago, Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders took a break from his legislative duties, stepped out on a congressional lawn, and with little fanfare, announced his candidacy for president. Okay, thank you all very, very much for uh, being out here today. Let me uh, just make a brief comment and be happy to take a few questions. We don't have an endless amount of time. I've got to get back. His pitch was this. Americans are working longer hours for lower wages. Adjusted for inflation, salaries haven't increased since the 1960s. The top 1% owns more wealth than the bottom 90% combined. And Bernie argued that that type of economics is both immoral and unsustainable. He criticized the ethics of being comfortable with childhood poverty while the number of millionaires goes up and up. And he drew attention to how the Citizens United decision means millionaires and billionaires can more easily buy and sell elections, making the problem worse. The pitch might feel familiar to you in the best way. Bernie decided to run in 2016 because he felt that the issues, concerns faced by everyday Americans all over this country, weren't getting a fair hearing. By entering the race, he hoped to bring attention to those issues. But then, the unexpected happened. CNN projects that Bernie Sanders will be the winner of the Democratic primary uh, in uh, New Hampshire. There you now see the winner. Stunning results for the Democrats overnight. Bernie Sanders with a big upset victory over Hillary Clinton in Michigan. 10,000 people coming out in Wisconsin to support presidential hopeful Bernie Sanders. Look at this. Look at the crowd. It became clear that Bernie's ideas weren't just influencing the race. They were helping Americans to reimagine the kind of world that was even possible. Now, he's running again to help make that possibility a reality. This is Hear the Burn, Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders' new podcast, which offers a behind-the-scenes look at how campaigns work, how political movements grow, and what motivates the man who has reintroduced big, transformational ideas into politics. My name is Brianna Gray, National Press Secretary for Bernie's 2020 campaign, and I hope you'll join me as we explore the ideas that are driving this movement. On Hear the Burn, we're not only going to hear from Bernie Sanders. We're going to talk to all the people who are helping to build this movement behind the scenes, from campaign staffers to surrogates to union leaders, teachers, nurses, and you, everyday Americans. We want this to be a space to talk about the difficult issues that everyday Americans deal with, from student debt and social security to immigration and criminal justice issues. Coming up, we've got an interview with Bernie Sanders in which, among other things, he explains why political half measures, particularly with respect to healthcare reform, are failing the American people. Ultimately though, this podcast isn't just about Bernie Sanders, it's about all of us. That's why at the end of the podcast, we talked to Claire Sandberg, our organizing director, about the campaign's efforts to help mobilize and expand the ranks of the one million people who've already signed up to volunteer for the Sanders campaign. Before I joined the Bernie 2020 campaign, I was a senior politics editor at The Intercept. Before that, I was a lawyer, which means that unlike most people here at Bernie HQ, this is my first campaign. It's been fun to talk to folks who were around in 2016 to see what's changed. And then two weeks later, they hit us up and were like, hey, you, you want to work for the campaign? And we all got in a car and drove to Vermont from California. So You drove to Vermont from California? Yeah. That was Kyle Machado on our organizing team, 
who worked on the 2016 campaign as deputy director of the National Calling Program. So you drive to Vermont. We drive to Vermont. You get to Vermont. What are headquarters like? We arrive at this old bank. Okay. You sort of like enter this like foyer and and there's an elevator, but in front of the elevator, facing the door, like the first thing you see is a giant bank vault door, <laughs> uh, right? Wait, could and you go in? No, you couldn't go in. It was almost like f a framed bank vault door. Okay, so it was like it's just this, for the look. It's a different, totally different feel now. We have like a beautiful office mm -hmm. um, and, you know, uh, uh, real office furniture, Nice restroom facilities. Uh, <laughs> there's like there's a refrigerator in the office. There <laughs> two refrigerators. Two refrigerators in the office, which wasn't the case before. As the campaign's national press secretary, I sit with other members of the communications team. Valencia, a 25-year-old Arizonan DACA recipient who was brought to the states at age six, is our Latino department press secretary and a veteran of the Bernie 2016 campaign. Bill Needhart, our Midwest press secretary previously worked in Wisconsin Senator Tammy Baldwin's office. Belin is a bubbly extrovert who's as down to talk essential oils as she is electoral politics. Bill, age 28, is the taskmaster of the table, constantly shaming me with his ability to get through pages and pages of to-do items neatly written on graph paper. It's a fun dynamic. I feel like we're like ready. Like we, we are so much more prepared um, and excited. Uh, we were excited last time, but I think that it's, it's it's like nostalgia almost of like mm. actually being able to complete our mission this time. Um, that makes people really excited. I've been on winning campaigns. I've been on losing campaigns too. The attitude, the culture here, the absolute collaboration that you see just level uh, upon level is just breathtaking. And uh, yeah, we're, we're, in this, we're in this to win. We actually believe in the mission. I think that's what's important. I think that's what makes the campaign so um, real, to be honest with you, is that we actually believe in what we're fighting for. We don't just do this as a career. Belen's feeling is one that permeates this office, and it's a feeling common among Sanders supporters throughout the country. Last week, I sat down with Senator Sanders to talk about the campaign, why he's running, and what makes him unique among a crowded field. Hello, Senator Sanders, and thank you so much for joining us for this inaugural episode of Hear the Burn. Good to be with you, Brianna. But this isn't your first time in a recording studio. Mm, probably my two millionth time, <laughs> but uh, yeah. Ever since I was mayor of Burlington, I thought it was important to communicate directly with the people because I think the corporate media often does not allow us to focus on the most important issues facing the working families of this country. So from way back when, I did appreciate the importance of trying to, in one way or another, talk directly with people. And that's obviously what we're going to do in this campaign as well. So what is it, do you think, that people don't know about you at this point, after having run a campaign in 2016 and gotten a lot more exposure to your political ideas, right. ideas which at this point have become mainstream, what do they still need to know? See, all my advisors tell me, my millions of advisors tell me that I don't talk enough about myself, which is probably true. You know, I happen to think that it, what is most important are the issues that people believe in. You have some really nice, good, honest folks out there who are good fathers, good mothers, good husbands, good wives, but they want to end Social Security, they want to end Medicare, they want to end Medicaid, they want to give huge tax breaks to the rich. So I think what we need to do, sure, focus on character, and that's in who people are. 
but you also have to focus on what people stand for and what they're doing. So I think it's a combination of both, and I probably have not been as forthright and open. You know, I'm running for president of the United States, and people want to know, who is this guy? You know, where did he come from? I think the two distinguishing factors that have shaped who I am as a, as a political person have to do that I was born in a working-class family in Brooklyn, New York. My father came to this country at the age of 17 without a nickel in his pocket. And I'll tell you something. A couple of years ago, my brother and I went to Poland, to the small rural town that he was born in. And it really did just shake me to think that a 17-year-old kid who couldn't speak a word of English, who had no money, came from a poor family, came all across this country you know, to start a new life. That's something. He never made any money. And we lived in a rent-controlled three-and-a-half-room apartment in Brooklyn, New York. And the struggles that my family had with money, not that we were poor, not that we were ever hungry. My father always had a job, just never made any money. My mother's dream in life was to get out of that apartment and own what was called in Brooklyn a private house. Do you ever hear that expression? I haven't. Private house. All that that meant when you grow up in, in Brooklyn in an apartment, some people on the block had a private home. Hmm. It's a home. We lived in an apartment. So she wanted that. She died young. She never had that. The second part of my life that impacted me was being Jewish and growing up with the understanding that some of my father's family uh, were killed by Hitler and reading that and, you know, never understanding fully why it would be that you would have people who would murder millions of people because of their religion. So I think those two factors helped develop the politics that I have today. So you've spoken more recently about how your politics emerged, how those influences emerged once you went to college and found yourself exposed to perhaps different kinds of prejudice than you had been exposed to previously. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, that's right. I went to one year at Brooklyn College. My mother had died, and I, I just wanted to get out of Brooklyn and where I grew up, and I wanted to get away. And I ended up at the University of Chicago for my second year of college. And the University of Chicago was and is a very good school, but I ended up learning more off campus Mm -hmm. than I did in in the classrooms. And what I was exposed to for the first time in my life was, you know, the civil rights movement and became involved in that in a little way. Exposed to the labor movement and got involved in that in a little way. Exposed to the peace movement and got involved in, in that in a little way. Met some great people, just some great people in the city of Chicago and spent a whole lot of time down in the basement, in the stacks. I don't know if they use that expression anymore. They do. Do they? (laughs) I don't know how many people still go to the stacks, (laughs) but that's what they call them. (laughs) So buried, you know, 18 miles down in the University of Chicago, Hopper Library, where I was reading everything except the books that I was supposed to be reading. Didn't do particularly well in school, but learned a whole lot (laughs) about history and sociology and psychology and politics and so forth and so on. We got involved in, in the issue of the university owning segregated housing, and fighting that, segregated schools uh, in Chicago, got arrested in a demonstration there, and met some just very, very wonderful people who influenced my life. So I think a lot of people might be surprised by that, that a northern institution with a relatively liberal reputation would, at that point in American history, still have segregated housing. And I think a lot of uh, why there's some dispute or controversy in this country about, you know, why certain groups are still victims of, you know, whether it's a racial wealth gap or a gender pay gap, is that they perceive events as very historical that were actually in, in very recent history. So can you, can you talk a little bit more about your realization that 
the university had segregated housing and what you did. But the point that you made is a good point, is that it's one thing for people to talk a liberal game. And mm -hmm. the University of Chicago was and is a good academic school. But the truth is that at that point, they ran indisputably uh, segregated housing. They owned a lot of housing in the area. And I remember, like it was kind of yesterday, I was involved in a group which is um, now long defunct, it was called CORE, Congress mm -hmm. of Racial Equality. Are you familiar with that? I am. What we did is uh, we sent a black couple in to, to look at, at housing, and they was, oh, I'm sorry, we just have no housing available, sorry. And an hour later, we sent the white couple in and they said, oh, well, we have three apartments over here, which, which one would you like? And we took that evidence to the university, and we ended up having a sit-in demonstration, one of the very first in, in the North. But I think it exposed to me not only the reality of segregated housing, but the hypocrisy of a liberal institution. And, you know, that hypocrisy exists uh, to today. And, and, you know, as you indicated, we have a nation with massive amounts of income and wealth inequality. And within that income and wealth inequality, you have incredible disparities between blacks and whites. So you have today a wealth gap of 10 to 1 between white families and black families. Infant mortality rates in the black community are atrocious, two and a half times higher than white community, black kids are getting out of school much more deeply in debt if they get out of school at all. Schools not getting the funding that they need in African-American communities, et cetera, et cetera. You know, it might surprise you to learn when I was in law school, actually, we still are sending people to do those same um, housing tests. We right. would recruit black students and white students and students of other races to go and pretend to be couples or roommates looking for housing, and we still get bad results. 50 you know, years in Boston, later. right, right, right. So I think what a lot of people are curious about is how your personal history and how your engagement with these kinds of civil rights issues translated into your legislative career and your political career. If you grow up in a family that struggled economically, you kind of know that you're not the only family in America then or now that is in that boat. And my criticism of the media, and I get very angry at this, is they don't deal with that reality. You know why Donald Trump was elected president? One of the reasons he was elected president is people turn on the TV and nobody is talking about the lives of working class people, black and white and Latino, who are struggling to put food on the table to pay their rent. You got, I don't know how many millions of people paying 40, 50, 60% of their limited incomes in housing. Who's talking about that? Well, you know, I know a little bit about that. My background shapes what I do politically. So what does it mean? I look around this country and I see, you know, starting with the little kids, you tell me, this is the wealthiest country in the history of the world. We're seeing a proliferation of billionaires. Why do we have the highest rate of childhood poverty of almost any major country on earth? Do we talk about it? More and more billionaires, and yet you have approximately 20% of the kids in this country uh, living in poverty. If you live in poverty, the odds are you're not going to do well. And, and if you live in poverty, your parents are not going to give you a decent childcare, right? We have a dysfunctional childcare system. Our public school system is failing. Not in all communities. Some communities are doing great. But in many communities, often minority communities, inexperienced teachers, underpaid teachers, families that are dysfunctional kids who are not doing well. Kids can't go to college because they can't afford it. Mm -hmm. You've got 40 million people leaving school deeply in debt. Mm -hmm. Are you one of those? I absolutely am. <laughs> I am. You know, in fact, you know, statistically, black women graduate with more debt than any other group. And part of that has to do with the racial wealth gap and the, you know, the ability or lack thereof of, of families to pay people's loans. And I'm very lucky to have gone to a great institution, but I, I compare myself to some of my peers who are 
buying brownstones in Brooklyn and right. and, and and you are working for me at starvation <laughs> wages. How grossly unfair! I'm doing okay. it's okay, <laughs> but yeah, no, it's it's a it's a stunning contrast. And so you you ask the question, you know, why is it that we are so different from so many other similarly wealthy, similarly situated countries? You know, what happened to us along the way to make it so that we're one of the few, perhaps only country, uh, you know of the status in the world that's still using employer-based health care. We're the wealthiest country in the history of the world. We're seeing a proliferation of billionaires. We're seeing a massive transfer of wealth over the last 40 years from the middle class to the top 1%. And yet of all of the major countries on earth, there is one country that does not guarantee health care to all people as a right. I live in Burlington, Vermont, 50 miles north of us in Canada, and a lot of people still don't know this. I was up in Toronto last year. We went to a hospital. You go into a hospital, you're dealing with cancer, you're dealing with serious heart disease, you have major surgery. Do you know what your bill is when you get out of the hospital? It's zero. It's zero. I think they have, they charge you for parking. <laughs> and I talked to the patients and I talked to the doctors. Never forget this. And, and the patients were saying, look, I am struggling now dealing with cancer. I got enough on my mind not to have to worry about how my family is going to pay for this or whether we're going to go bankrupt. So it's an incredible relief. Uh, and the doctors, what they say is, you know, I treat all of my patients the same. I don't have to worry whether they're insured or whether they are partially insured. Right. So we are the only major country on earth that doesn't guarantee health care all. And by the way, just in passing, we end up spending twice as much per capita on health care as do the people of any other nation. So if I sold you a car for $80,000 and he had a car for $40,000 and his car worked better than yours, something is not quite going right. Bottom line here is we are not talking, in my view, about a healthcare debate. We're talking about a political debate. We're talking about the power of the insurance companies and the drug companies who are making huge profits, whose CEOs, the guy who's head of United Healthcare, mm -hmm. take a wild and crazy guess as to how much he made last year as head of that insurance company. Ooh. Answer is $83 million. Wow. How's that? And you got executives in, in the industry making huge amounts of money. They have unlimited amounts of money to spend on lobbying and campaign contributions. They're going to lie like crazy about Medicare for all. Why? Because they got a good thing going. They're making a whole lot of money. So what if 30 million people have no health insurance and even more underinsured? So what if people can't afford the prescription drugs they desperately need? They got a good system. But we're going to take them on. Very simple proposition. Number one, is healthcare all right or is it not? Yes, it is for all the markets. Number two, how do you provide healthcare to 320 million people in a cost-effective way? answer, expanding Medicare, Medicare for every man, woman, and child in this country. So what do you say then to the proliferation of alternative healthcare improvement ideas like Medicare for America and some other options that fall short of doing a full single-payer healthcare? Well, it dodges the question of whether healthcare is a right or not. Mm -hmm. But more importantly, it doesn't get to the root of why our healthcare system is dysfunctional. If you've got a leaky bucket, you can keep pouring water into it and keep it half full. If you have a dysfunctional healthcare system, you can come up with a program that adds more people to healthcare, and that's okay. But you've got to get to the root of the problem. What's the root of the problem? The current healthcare system is not designed to provide healthcare for all. It's designed to make profits and huge compensation packages for the people who run the system. And it is incredibly wasteful. It's an administrative nightmare. We waste hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars every single year on administering over a thousand private health care programs in this country. So we need a simple system where we put money into doctors and nurses 
and disease prevention rather than making the insurance industry rich. A lot of what gets kind of lost in this conversation is the extent to which the savings come from cutting out that middleman, cutting out the insurance industry. And I think a lot of these compromise plans or uh, plans that don't go quite as far, they miss out on the $2 trillion worth of savings that was estimated by that, the right-wing think tank. That they were. We think that that's the underwrite. Sure. The answer is when you have a system, and by the way, let's repeat this. We are the only nation on earth that allows private insurance companies to profit off of people's illness. Okay. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it distorts what healthcare is about. Look, healthcare is complicated stuff. Technology changes every day, new, new drugs come on the market. The goal has got to be how do I provide health care to you in the most cost-effective way? And truly it means the, investing in disease prevention, trying to keep you healthy, right? Mm-hmm. Making sure that you go to a doctor whenever you are sick rather than ending up in an emergency room or in the hospital. Mm-hmm. Making sure that you can afford prescription drugs. One out of five Americans don't get the drugs their doctors prescribe. But unless you get it the root of why the system is dysfunctional and wasteful, the administrative nightmare. Mm-hmm. You talk to doctors and nurses. They say, I spend half my life arguing with insurance companies as to whether or not I can use this uh, prescription drug or this therapy. If you make a simple system, which gives people, by the way, freedom of choice to the doctor they want to go to, the mm-hmm. hospital they want to go to, you know, my Republican friends say, people love their insurance companies. <laughs> Yeah, no one loves their insurance companies. They love their doctors, they love their nurses, they love their, you know, uh, hospitals perhaps. And we give people far more choice than they have right now. Every year, every year, people lose their insurance because they change their jobs, Mm -hmm. right? You start to start all over again. What we are doing is guaranteeing health care. You lose your job, you want, not only lose your job, how many young people do you know who want to move to a different profession, but are afraid to leave their job because they'll lose their health. That was me. That was absolutely me. I was an attorney and a a rather unhappy one at that. (laughs) And my transition to journalism was enabled by the fact that I was freelancing on the side and a job happened to come my way. But if I had not had the time to devote that time to writing on on the side, you know, who knows what would have happened because I wouldn't have been willing, willing to take the risk of leaving a job and not having insurance in the interim. Right. And, you know, so a lot of people are saying at jobs where they're unhappy right now. We're right. not starting businesses, doing the work that they love because of that. So this is really not a radical idea. I want to just reiterate. When you have a system that is dysfunctional, we are seeing a decline in life expectancy in the mm-hmm. United States, okay, unlike the rest of the world. We spend twice as much per person. This is, it's impossible to defend the system. But the, the argument is that these guys clearly have huge amounts of money and they're going to lie and do everything they can. Mark my words, friends, you're going to be see 30-second ads on television telling you that Bernie Sanders is terrible or awful, wants to do horrible things. Uh, no, understand where that money is coming from. So what do you say um, to people who see a, an intrinsic value to doing things little by little, piecemeal, who see doing a big change, you know, pursuing big change as somehow politically risky? Look, uh, you know, and then again, this gets away from healthcare to you know, how we bring about change in this country. It's nothing new here. If you look at the history of this country and you think about what are the real changes, and that's boy, that's maybe next podcast we'll do that one. That'll be about a five-hour <laughs> podcast, but it has to do with mobilizing people at the grassroots level to fight for justice. You think about workers in this country in the 1920s who were working 60, 70 hours a week. There were children working in factories, and finally, people said enough is enough. 
you know, workers deserve unions, so we're going to negotiate for decent wages. Civil rights movement, the same thing that this, you know, all of the racism and segregation that existed. People stood up and said, enough is enough. Women's movement. People mm -hmm. organized at the grassroots of the gay rights movement. And we are now, I, I think, in a moment where, and it's not just healthcare, it's raising the minimum wage to a living wage where we've had some progress over the last uh, few years. It is making sure that everybody can think about your life or millions of other people's lives, like public colleges, good public colleges, universities, we're tuition free, mm -hmm. all right? And, and we've got to deal with this issue of student debt. Sitting at the top of this whole thing perhaps is the issue of climate change. Mm -hmm. I mean, if in fact the scientists are right, and I have no reason to doubt that they are, you know, you're talking about irreparable harm to this planet. I've got seven beautiful grandchildren, and I want them to live in a healthy and habitable world. So we have to take bold action, have the guts to take on the fossil fuel industry. All of these things are related, and they get back to the fact that we cannot allow a handful of billionaires to control the economic and political life of this country. People are like, oh, well, it's just Bernie's rhetoric. It's not rhetoric. Check out who makes the campaign contributions. Check out why in the United States Senate today under Republican leadership, all these guys can talk about are more tax breaks for the rich, more cuts to Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security, and so forth and so on. So we need, and what this campaign is about, it is developing that strong grassroots movement where millions of people ultimately come together and they say, you know what, we're going to create a government and an economy that works for all of us, that works for our children, our grandchildren, and not just make billionaires richer. It really is not all that much more complicated than that. I think that in some ways, climate change is the issue that forces people to reject presumptions about how quickly political processes are supposed to happen. And I think the recent climate report that gives us 12 years to make substantive changes. And to be clear, those 12 years are to ameliorate what's already kind of a disaster, right? You know, already that's, that's saying, you know, we, were, we had a bucket of harm that could be this large and we're shrinking it to half that size by doing it in 12 years. That's not to say we get off scot-free, right? And I think that's an important point to make because the exigency is way higher even than, than we are arguing for. But I, I'm hopeful that because people are thinking differently, because climate change has changed their perspective and their lens, they realize that the same way that the climate is vulnerable, that there are people who've been living lives that are lacking in dignity, that have, are lacking in freedom and the ability to really self-exercise because they don't have access to health care, because they don't have the freedom to change their job, um, because they don't have the ability to earn a wage that would enable them to afford a, a one-bedroom apartment. And no, and no state in this country, as you well know, can a person earning uh, the federal minimum wage afford at the average price of a one-bedroom apartment. Brianna, I was in... Uh in San Francisco in the airport, and we dropped in and talked to some airport workers there. Guys were making $18 an hour, and he was paying over $20,000 a year for rent. Mm -hmm. And California rent is, is off the charts, but that's the point. Yeah. All right. So all that I ask and what this campaign is about is everybody take a deep breath and look around you and ask what's going on in this country. Can we have health care as a right like every other country? I think so. Can you raise the minimum wage to a living wage so that nobody who works 40 hours a week lives in poverty? Yeah. Is it a radical idea to say that young people should be able to go to college regardless of their income? You know, this whole thing about making public colleges and universities tuition-free. Do you know how much the University of California cost, what was it, 50, 60 years ago? How much? Well, it was free. <laughs> oh, well, right. That was the answer. Brooklyn right. College, City College in New York. Brooklyn College. These were great schools. These were not, you know... 
third-rate schools. These were some of the best colleges in America. They were virtually tuition-free. Yeah. And now 50 years later, people are going deeply into debt. Does that make sense? It does not. All right. Just think big. These are not radical ideas. You can create an economy that works for everybody. We can do what every other country on earth does. Healthcare is a human right. We have got to, as Brianna just said, address this looming, existential, if you like, crisis of climate change. Do we really want to leave a planet to our kids and grandchildren, great-grandchildren? They're going to be uninhabitable. But all of these things, and I think what makes this campaign a little bit different than others, is we understand that to accomplish those goals, which are unto themselves not radical, they're common sense really, supported by a majority of the American people, you're going to have to struggle. You're going to have to struggle because there are very powerful forces in the fossil fuel industry and the big money interest who really are going to do everything they can to maintain the status quo. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today in the midst of your busy um, campaign schedule. I look forward to having a lot more of these conversations over the coming weeks and months. Okay, you got it. Thank, thank you. you. Before I worked on a political campaign, before I was a journalist, before I was a Sanders supporter even, I was just a 30-year-old attorney who, like a lot of Americans, felt disaffected by politics. I felt burdened by my law school debt, trapped in a job that didn't really accord with my interests, talents, or politics, and I was confused about what to do next. Now that it's my job to communicate why Sanders is the best choice to the broader public, I've been thinking a lot about what drew me personally to the campaign, and also what turned me off about business-as-usual, so-called establishment politicians. I realized that perhaps the thing about Bernie that I like best is his choice to make the moral case for action first. The way he points to suffering under the status quo and says clearly and without equivocation, the status quo isn't good enough. Now, I've heard friends argue that it's an exercise in privilege to ask more from our politicians. They cite the risk that by asking for too much, we might lose elections to more conservative politicians who would make things even worse. But what about those who don't have the privilege of waiting a generation or five for things to get better? A recent NBC Wall Street Journal poll revealed that more Democratic primary voters preferred a candidate who proposes larger scale policies that cost more and might be harder to pass into law, but could bring major change on these issues, than someone who proposes smaller scale policies that would bring less change. And history has shown that campaigns which aim to merely uphold the status quo, or do incrementally better, often fail to generate sufficient enthusiasm. To me, this poll speaks to the reality that for millions of Americans, trying to bridge the gap between the status quo and a life with dignity with anything less than bold action is an insult. It's a privilege of sorts to ignore families which have been suffering in poverty or near poverty for generations, who know all too well that a zip code is a better predictor of life outcomes than merit, gumption, or talent. It's not enough to kick the can down the road to a generation 50 years from now. We have to respect those living today and do everything we can to help them. In the richest country in the world, where 40 million Americans live in poverty, 100 million live near poverty, and millions more struggle to make ends meet, all while 85% of post-recession income growth 
goes to the 1%, to do anything less is unconscionable. As Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez put it when I interviewed her last month, incrementalism is just not good enough. It feels like moderate is not a stance, it's just an attitude toward life of like, <laughs> We've become so cynical that, that we view meh or uh, or we view cynicism as an intellectually superior attitude. And we view ambition as youthful naivete. When we think about the greatest things we have ever accomplished as a society have been ambitious acts of vision. And the meh is like worship now for what? Like for what? And given the immediate threat of climate change, the stakes have never been higher. It's a difference of urgency. For someone who's seven years old, we just sat here talking about the Clinton impeachment like it was yesterday. At that time, 20 years from now in the future, we will have all coral reefs gone in this country. This is an emergency in this country. It's an emergency on this planet. I support Bernie Sanders because he understands that better than any politician I've ever known. When I was in law school, one of the things that bothered me most was being told we should always put the moral argument last on exams or legal briefs. First, we were supposed to make arguments based on legal precedent, on the logic that previous courts agreed with us. Policy arguments, or the ethical, often human-centered reasons that we should want a certain outcome, we were supposed to leave those to the very end. Too many politicians, many of them lawyers themselves, have a similar approach. I think it's okay to say Americans deserve better. In fact, I think we must say it. At the end of each episode, we want to take a moment to connect ideas to practice. And this week, I want to draw attention to the huge volunteer effort that the campaign is launching this month. Claire Sandberg is the campaign's national organizing director, and she dropped by the studio to tell us a little bit more about what's going on. Tell us, Claire, as national organizing director, what do we need to know about? It's a very exciting moment in the campaign. We have 1.1 million people who said that they're in, they want to be a part of the political revolution, wow. and they want to carry the torch and take the next step to be involved. So we are formally kicking things off on Saturday, April 27th with our organizing kickoff. It's going to be the moment that we ask volunteers from around the country, wherever they are, to host an event, attend an event, and get started talking to voters, talking to their friends about Bernie and about why he's the best candidate to defeat Trump. What kind of events do people usually have? They have big events, small events. Sometimes it's just a few people. Um, last time around, we, we actually did this in 2015 as the first big moment, organizing moment of that campaign. So we're kind of going back to that point and doing it over again. And last time we had some events that were huge where people would rent out an entire movie theater and hmm. have a band play beforehand. <laughs> and then we also had sometimes small gatherings with just people and their neighbors. So a barnstorm, it's not a rally. It's smaller than a rally. 
but it's not a town hall. It's sort of in between, like it's not like a conversational mm -hmm. thing, mm -hmm. but it's like it's like a small rally. Huh. Like a small, little more personal rally. And is the barn required or is it just kind of no, a linguistic No, the barn quirk? is not required, but I think the <laughs> idea, yeah. For I listeners think, wanting to host their own barnstorms. Yeah, yeah. So if hypothetically, I'm a Bernie Sanders supporter who hypothetically lives in a studio apartment in Washington, D.C., I could have people over for a meal and talk to them about the campaign and talk to them about volunteering or donating and things like that? Yeah, absolutely. Anyone can host an event. Um, it's, it's really easy, and if you've never done it before, we will tell you everything that you need to know. If you go to berniesanders.com host, you can sign up to create an event, and our volunteers will be in touch with you and make sure that you have everything that you need to host a successful event on April 27th. Last time in the campaign, we had 80,000 volunteer events over the course wow. of the campaign. And most of those people had never done something like this before. So wherever you are in the event hosting process, we can get you going. Okay, thank you, Claire. I look forward to it. And I look forward to you coming back to talk to us uh, when things ramp up even further. Yeah, I can't wait. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to this week's show. We'll be putting out new episodes every week. In the meantime, let us know what you think. Send us questions, comments, and suggestions at hearttheburn at berniesanders.com. And we may share your thoughts in future episodes. Please rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. It makes a big difference and helps other people to discover the show. As always, you can donate to the campaign or sign up to volunteer at berniesanders.com. Till next week.